0: I was always the only woman. There are advantages. It immediately means that there's a spotlight on me. Do I ignore it? Do I do a really low tone and become all officer-like? Do I come in with fingernails painted or not?
1: I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show... Retired IDF colonel and former Israeli foreign media advisor, Miri Eisen. After immigrating from the U.S. at a young age, Miri Eisen enlisted into the Israeli Defense Forces at age 18, like most Israelis do. Little did she know how much her life would change. Miri ended up staying 20 years in the military. As she rose through the ranks, she was often the only female in her position, and the only female to ever hold her position. This meant she had to overcome military misogyny and even explicit harassment, which we talk about in our conversation. Miri is extremely smart, hardworking, and her mother tongue is English. This came in handy when the IDF called on her to serve as its international press spokesperson. The whole world took notice. In contrast to aggressive uniformed spokesmen, she brought a new tone to the role addressing military subjects with humanity and empathy. Her success was evident. After she retired from the IDF, the Prime Minister's office appointed her as their official foreign media advisor, a role which she stepped down from in 2007. Miri is an inspiration to me. She's proof that even with barriers in front of you, like being an immigrant or a female in a male-dominated environment, you can aim high, overcome glass ceilings, and do it your own way. Miri grew up in the nature field, Hippie, Northern California, in one of only three Jewish families in her neighborhood. She describes herself as a bookworm who also liked to play outside. But one day, as a third grade student, her parents took a trip to Israel.
0: Our parents came back after two weeks, said, hi, we're moving to Israel. And we literally moved nine months later.
1: So wait a second. Was it their first trip to Israel? It was their
0: first trip. Their first trip to
1: Israel? Their first trip to Israel. two weeks and they decided to make Aliyah?
0: I think that they were there already, that they came here with a mindset that said, let's go see this place we've always been connected to. To our parents going off to Israel, that was an adventure for them. They're coming home and saying, hi, we're moving to Israel. That became an adventure for all of us. They sold the house. We did a garage sale. (laughs) Could there be a more American thing than a garage sale? My parents did not want to bring things to Israel.
1: No container.
0: No container. They wanted to come and start anew. Because of that, they wouldn't let us take anything except they let us each take a trunk, as if we're going to keep One trunk. One trunk. That's probably the place where it hurt me the most.
1: Wow. <laughs> we just came back to Israel after 16 years and we just had a garage sale. That uh, was a very different experience than your experience because we are, we're, we're waiting for our container to come. So I feel your, your pain.
0: It was pain. I don't know to say that that made it easier or harder, but it certainly meant that we all understood that it was a new start. Probably my strongest memory is the first day of school where you arrive in a class and I don't know any Hebrew and you go from like being the smartest kid in the class to being the absolute stupidest. I walked in and I said, Shalom, Kurimli li Miriam. Hi, my name is Miriam. And the teacher looked at me and said, Achshav at be'aretz ha'kodesh. Miriam ze Galuti. Po at Miri. What the teacher said to me in 1972 is that Miriam is an exile name. It's a name that they give Jews outside of the historic land of Israel. Now you're in the historic land of Israel. Your new name is Miri, and I've been Miri ever since.
1: I can only imagine that moment, and uh, thinking about Israeli politically correctness.
0: (laughs) New immigrants, when they come into a new environment, need to feel comfortable in their environment. And I think that renaming, on the one hand, you can feel disconnected, And on the other hand, it immediately makes you feel at home. She said, that's your Israeli name. And she was right in 1971, Miriam. That was like a shtetl name. And in Israel, Miri, 50 years ago, was a very hip kind of name. I felt like I was totally Israeli by sixth grade. And the only challenge was, was that the fourth graders knew me as Miriam. And to this day, there are people who will meet me and say, Shalom Miriam. And I'm always like, okay, they're either from the bank or they knew me in fourth grade. Everybody else calls me Miri.
1: Fast forward, you're a teenager, time to think about the Army. What did you have in mind? What did you think you wanted to do?
0: I graduated high school in 1980. My two sisters were drafted in the few years before me. My eldest sister became a clerk at a really good place, a clerk. My middle sister became a clerk, really good place, but a clerk, because we're talking 1980. 95% of the women were drafted then into clerical positions. So it meant that you were typing up what either you had written down or somebody else had written down, so you had to figure out their handwriting. It was making coffee, and it was setting up scheduling. Everything that any person nowadays does on their own. And I'm top of my class, and why in the world am I going to do something which to me is not important, and much less than all of the people who are top of the class and happen to be men are going to be doing in the military. In my own way, I feel very fortunate and lucky because my sisters know English just like I do. They studied French like I did, and I was drafted into a military intelligence unit for the English and the French. And my two sisters are just as smart as I am and just as capable as I am. But we had been here only five years and seven years when they were drafted. And by the time I was drafted, we'd been here for nine years. So I passed also the security check to be able to get into military intelligence.
1: So you were drafted to intelligence and did you know what you want to do?
0: I had no idea what military intelligence meant. Basically, when I was put into military intelligence... Do you remember Mad Magazine? So Mad Magazine, there's a little thing called spy versus spy. The day that I was told I was gonna be military intelligence and I came home, my mother went out and bought me a jacket and glasses. Of course it was black, what do you expect? Only people who have read Mad Magazine understand that of course that's what you do when you hear somebody's in intelligence. We were 9 women and 150 men, and I did positions inside military intelligence until the end of what we call in Israel compulsory service. And I got out, and I went to university. And parallel to that, I did tour guides course. I didn't think of a military career at all. It was at the stage where throughout my undergraduate degree, I knew that I was going to go into Israel's foreign service. I always thought that I would be in diplomacy. My English, my French, I had that tour guide background. And as I went through my undergraduate degree, I understood that the foreign service was not for me. That it was too much talking and much less doing. So I was already looking back towards my military intelligence background. There I stayed until 2005.
1: You spent 20 years in the army, rose to the ranks, probably for a lot of these positions. You were the first woman to hold that position. What did you like about your service? What was exciting for you?
0: I love military intelligence. I like doing crossword puzzles, which is probably similar. I love the idea of looking at an enemy and trying to find out the information about them. Trying to be right, even when you don't know all of the pieces of the puzzle and understanding the resources, the capabilities, the investment of both people and technology. It's fascinating and it continues to fascinate me. The position I liked most was when I was the head of the Syrian branch in the Northern Command. I was the walking encyclopedia about the Syrian military for the entire IDF, teaching the military about it, trying to make sure that we made the best decisions. By far, that's the most fulfilling position Because you're doing something professional, you're really good at it, and it was just a really good time. And in the military, you're in a male environment. I didn't mind the environment. It was never easy. I was always the only woman. There are advantages. It immediately means that there's a spotlight on me. I am the only woman there. Do I ignore it? Do I do a really low tone and become all officer-like? Do I come in with fingernails painted or not? I made a lot of decisions along the way. First of all, I've always had short hair. Women are allowed to have long hair and men are not. I had short hair. That wasn't the dilemma. I never wore makeup. I know lots of women in the military who do. My daughter, 21, officer in the IDF, puts on a little bit of makeup, and I never did that. I found it to be easier not to be exceptional in that way. Where did I take advantage of the fact that I was the only woman? As soon as I opened my mouth, it was clear cut that I was different from everybody else in the room. When I wanted to say something and I would go, (coughs) okay, it's a woman's voice who's doing that. And I would talk very systematically and never loud. Even if today inside military intelligence, it's 50% women, the environment, the culture is a male environment. It's going to be talking down to you. You're a woman you don't understand. You're a woman you weren't in the combat unit like we all were. You're different. And I am. So the question is, what do you do with that? I said, okay. So take me with and show me how you go on a tank, on an armed personnel carrier, how you go and fire. I have fired anti-tank missiles. I mean Oh,
1: F? What did you fire?
0: I actually fired Syrian ones.
1: Syrian one.
0: Yes. The Sagar is the very, very old-fashioned 73-war, what we call first generation anti-tank missile. And the Cornet is a second generation anti-tank missile. And the silliest thing, because that I actually do have a photograph of, but I remember the day very clearly. I was wearing a skirt and sandals. (laughs) How often? I was in uniform, and I have on a helmet, but I'm wearing a skirt and sandals and firing a cornet missile. My colleagues were going to go try them out. So I came along for the day to watch them fire it, and one of them missed, and then the other one hit. And at some stage along the way, they were like, Why don't you fire it too? And I was like, are you kidding? I'm in a skirt and in sandals. It was a summer day. And they were like, it's okay, put on a helmet. And I put on a helmet. You're looking through the scope. You fire the missile itself. You feel like a whoosh. And I hit, because I had learned from the two before me. There's no question that until you fired many of these weapons, you don't understand both the recoil, the noise, the challenges that it does, it was fun.
1: <laughs> Just as an anecdote, uh, I was in Orev Golani. Right. So, you I fired a lot this. of okay. I, I fi- Not a lot. A lot of uh, Fortunately. You know, simulation, uh, simulator uh, fires, but one in lebanon i fired and a few days later a sagar was fired at me a few meters from me <laughs> so that was was my experience with this missile but
0: that's exactly that sort of thing where a missile still scary in its own way and i think to myself you know just like when we think about weapons there's the one side of it which as i said it's exciting you feel very strong you feel like you're doing something and then there's the other side So it's really challenging. Every single position, you always have to prove yourself again. I didn't have to prove that Mary's good at the job. I had to prove that women are good at the job. If I failed at a job, it isn't Mary that failed at the job. It was women who failed at the job.
1: Were there moments where you felt you want to leave that because of these challenges?
0: I went on an almost full year leave of absence. I became a full-time tour guide. I loved it. And after 10 months, I was asked to come back in a more advanced position. And I thought about it and I said, I've taken enough time. I filled up my batteries. I came back in. But my entire experience in the military was one where I was the only woman. Very challenging. I'm going to give two stories. They're very personal. The first one, I was... Younger, and my direct commanding officer did overt sexual harassment when we were alone. I chose not to call him out. I thought about it. I talked about it with a lawyer friend of mine. And we both said that the only thing that will happen is that I'm going to lose my position and they may move him, but nobody will forgive me. And I chose not to do so. I am fine with my choice. Having said that, when I talk to young women today, I make it clear to them that I live with that every single day, my not having called him out, because he would definitely have gone to jail. Okay, it's overt. It's not about crossing a little line. It was crossing a big line. When I was already at a higher rank, a general did things in a subtle way that I'm not even sure that he understood what he was doing inviting me to give a briefing very late at night and nobody else is there and so what i chose to do and this is already a stage that i was much more clear about myself is i came with with two soldiers he was like why are you bringing them i said you asked for a professional briefing and they are the ones who know the best professional information what is he going to do tell me to send them out of the room i want to hear it only from you and i still talk about this with women you walk into that room make sure the door is open make sure that the person who has to go get up and close the door realizes what they're doing. That makes it much more stark. And it's to avoid the confrontation of something happening before it happens. Side note, in the first case, the person ran for public office and he sent to all sorts of different people because he wanted to get um, endorsed. And I wrote him direct and said, not only do I not endorse you, but I'm going to tell people never to vote for you and think twice about what you did oh so many years ago. He didn't get elected happily. I did think about it at the time that if he had been elected, I was going to say something. And when I talk with young women today who still meet that, you have to choose to yourself when you call out and when you don't because there is a price to both. It's never an easy answer. It wasn't 40 or 20 years ago, and it isn't today, even though the environment is very different. And in both cases, I remember them very clearly. I don't regret not having press charges, but I do think about it all of the time. I don't do hypotheticals. Life is about making choices and living with them. I'm very good at moving on. It doesn't mean I don't think about it but I realized that in the choices that I made, they were my choices. I would never impose my choices on anybody else. I think it's important to hear different people's choices and to know that at the end, whatever you make in your decision is one that you have to live with. And I'm living with mine. Uh,
1: You were an officer But you were also a mother, how did that change interaction, your role, your leadership? It's also probably a big sacrifice when you think about the kids not seeing their mom a lot.
0: All three of the kids were born when I'm an officer in the military. Three pregnancies meant three times. You walk in, a pregnant woman, everybody goes, what month are you? How do you feel? It's like, I'm actually here. I still know my stuff. In a very harsh way. When I had child number three, the military looked at me and said, we don't know what to do with you, mother of three under the age of five. I was a full colonel. There were a slew of positions that I should have been doing, that all of my friends who were married with three children would be doing, that the military wasn't willing to offer me because I was a mother. So it was a very harsh time for me professionally, where I was trying to learn the balance of doing both, But the military was saying, you can't do both. And I was like, why can't I do both? I was trying to find a balance. So with child number three, they looked at me and said, okay, here's one position that you can do. And I was like, I don't want that position. That's not where my capabilities are. And I was like, no. They're like, you're crazy. We're offering you a position. I was like, no. So we mutually agreed that I would not continue and I retired. But I want to be clear. I always worked. This isn't that I went from colonel to being stay-at-home mom. I'm not a stay-at-home mom. That's not me. I'm somebody who is inspired by working and is inspired by my children. I don't think at all that you have to choose. What you need to do is find the balance which fits you. And in this case, I felt that the military and military intelligence, when I was at that stage, did not know how to do it. I think that they're much better now because militaries understand that men aren't staying because of that. So suddenly it became a problem that men may want to actually raise their children too. So my retiring was not a happy time. I was angry with the military, and it took time to be away from the system itself, to be with the three kids, to start a different type of career, to understand you can always balance. So after a year, I found a niche that used my military intelligence capabilities in a vastly different way. And I breathed deep, and I said, this is what I want to do.
1: So in, take you a little bit back, in 2001, there was the second Intifada, you got a call that they wanted you to handle international media. Can you take <laughs> us to that moment? Was it, was it a surprise? Was it something you felt comfortable doing?
0: So in the summer of 2000, the Israeli and Palestinian leadership met to arrive at a resolution. They failed to arrive at it. We'd already been preparing for the onset of violence by the Palestinian Authority Forces, both in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And that started at the end of September 2000. The Palestinians coined the term Intifada and Second Intifada. It was from 2000 to 2004, and thousands of people died on both sides. And in this campaign, where Israel was quite effective militarily, we totally were losing the international diplomacy front, what we call the battle for the hearts and minds. And as part of that offensive, they also wanted to go on a diplomatic offensive. And I've always had the English. I've always been the person that in every single one of my positions, they brought me in to brief international media behind the scenes, to be the one who talks to all of the international generals who come here. Everybody always knew that. The Israeli chief of staff asked me, didn't make me, asked me if I would be willing to be a spokesperson. And I was brought in as a special spokesperson in April 2002. The first time I did so, they bring me in, I'm a full colonel in uniform, to Binyane Oma, the conference center in Jerusalem. They opened up a whole media center there, and they said, okay, you're going to talk about military intelligence stuff. And they showed me the material, I understand the material, it's my bread and butter. And the one thing that the IDF spokesperson asked me, they said, makeup. And I'm like, no, I don't wear makeup. They're like, no, you don't understand, on the media you have to, and I said, Do the men put it on? The officers who are briefing, and they're like, no, I'm like, I'm not putting on. So what if I'm a woman? I'm not putting on makeup. So I give the briefing in front of this whole audience. The international media don't know me. My face is not a known face. And it makes all the difference in the world when you're talking about military subjects to have my soft, calm voice. I always talk about my kids. I always access both the mother and me, empathy and sympathy, which are not prevalent in military spokespeople anywhere in the world. And it seems a silly aspect, but it really does impacts audiences in a different way rather than hearing the firm, very whatever kind of tone. It's both in tone, but it's also to talk in an empathetic way. Do you start by acknowledging pain, violence, or do you start by saying it's the terrorist's fault? And on that one, that's already about uh, how you do it and not just who does it. And afterwards, I was brought over to talk live on BBC and CNN and all the different outlets. And I did that for a few weeks and it changed my life. Totally. (laughs) I went from being behind the scenes to working with the international media. And I enjoyed doing that. And it's pretty much what I'm doing now. Because the international media knew me from before, you had a thousand journalists stationed here and they all wanted to understand professionally the world that they were living in. And I was the one who was giving them in-depth information.
1: Right. Not long after the retired Second Lebanon War and you get a call from the prime minister's office to serve as a spokesperson.
0: I was the official person that the state of Israel put in the front to contend with the international community. I became known worldwide. You go, ah, you already did that in 2002, but it was very different. This was 33 days of a war that were in the news for 33 days, and I was the person. For the first time in my life, I could not walk around without people recognizing me. Gil, you don't want to be the person that every single person comes up to you and goes, why does the state of Israel do this? Why does the state of Israel do that? And I became the it person. And it never really went away. I still, I mean, it's on silly little things. You go to take in your car to be tuned. The people at the garage are, why does Israel have this policy or a different policy? And in the prime minister's office, where I really felt that I was impacting every single day, I also felt that I was not finding the balance as a mother of three small kids. I think it was after one day, I was with the prime minister in Moscow, and my husband, he was in Berlin, and we were like, hey, who's with the kids? So it was understanding that our kids understood that what we were doing is really important, and don't talk now, because mom's talking to the prime minister. I stood up after two years and said, it's been fun. I can't continue missing every single important event in my children's life. Something, by the way, I didn't feel when I was a colonel in the military. And I stopped. And I'm very glad that I stopped at the time that I did. And that I could continue impacting media and otherwise, but without the job, 365,
1: 24-7. So today, what are some of the most challenging parts of your work today?
0: When you choose to be a person who is the one who is going to unpack the geopolitics of Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Middle Eastern arena, you're choosing a subject that you wake up in the morning and gives you heartburn. If you had asked me 20 or 30 years ago, I would be able to tell you very clearly that I am a progressive, liberal, Jewish, Israeli military person. I cannot give that combination of identities today to most of the audiences that I talk to. And I protest. I am still a progressive, liberal, Jewish, Israeli, military Zionist. If I say Zionist, I've alienated half the audience. If I say progressive liberal, I've probably alienated the other half. And I am a progressive liberal Zionist. And I'm not willing for anybody to tell me that I'm not. When I'm meeting a progressive liberal group in Israel, I do not expect somebody to look at me in Jerusalem and to say, you are a white supremist oppressor. In a discussion about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, an African-American educated woman told me that I was a white Israeli supremist oppressor. I stand and think, okay, what do I do now? Where we arrived at, the last two and a half years have only made this identity issue much more extreme. Over the last decade, I've watched the gaps grow. I don't think you can close the gaps. I think you can bridge the gaps. But in bridging gaps, you need each side to acknowledge the other side. The African-American woman, at the end of this conversation inside a room, we walked over and hugged each other. And I believe that that'll make a difference. So she may think I'm a white supremacist oppressor, but we bridge something human and and that's a bridge. In my professional capacity, I meet lots of groups that come for trips to view Israel, Israel in the Palestinian arena, very focused on geopolitics, on the conflict. The bulk of Israelis who view the Palestinian side view it through security lens. The bulk of people who view the Palestinian side through their lens, view it through a humanitarian lens. Those are two different languages. They're not just two different perspectives. And again, in that bridging mode, I try to talk my way through both the security and the humanitarian because they need to see each other, even if they don't agree.
1: A few questions that I ask each of our guests... What are you currently obsessed with?
0: I don't know why I love watching these British, very English-speaking detective series, but I do, and I binge-watch them.
1: What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you?
0: They all think I'm a kibbutznik.
1: Kibbutznik.
0: Everybody thinks that I come from a rural farming community. Nobody thinks that I'm Tel Avivian
1: ever. What are you most optimistic about?
0: My children's future. The sky is the limit. They're going to go far. The country's going to go far. It's wonderful.
1: Do you think any of your kids will choose the military as as a career?
0: Both of the older ones have chosen to do officer's course, which is a commitment. I don't expect either of them to stay, but I never thought I would stay. My husband never thought that he would stay, and look what happened to us. I hope that we give them inspiration rather than burden. Let them be whatever they want to be.
1: Got it. And finally, what piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey?
0: Your journey is personal. So listen to advice, but do what's right for you. Too many people give advice and want you to do what they said. Listen to what you want to do. You're the one who knows yourself the best.
1: Dear thank you so much for being on our show. It was wonderful having you.
0: Gil, there's nothing like eye track in your show, and I'm so happy to have been here.
1: You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by ITREK Studios. ITREK is a non-profit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and lit See you next time.